Locked on NBA, the biggest stories, the local experts. Every Monday, we look into the biggest stories in the NBA with the Locked On Podcast Network host. Today, we go to Phoenix to speak with Brendan Clean of Locked On Suns about Phoenix leveling their series with the Los Angeles Lakers, two games apiece after four. We go to Milwaukee to speak with Kane Pittman of Locked On Bucks about the Bucks sweep of the Miami Heat. And if that is that retribution for last season. And lastly, we go to Utah to speak with David Locke of Locked On Jazz about the Jazz winning the last two games in that series to take a 2-1 lead over the Memphis Grizzlies. It's all coming up. The biggest stories, the local experts on Locked On NBA. You are Locked On NBA. Your daily NBA podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hi, guys, and welcome back to another week of Locked On NBA. I am your Monday host, Josh Lloyd. I'm also the host of the Locked On Fantasy Basketball Podcast, and I'm the lead analyst at BasketballMonster.com and at Yahoo Sports Australia. This episode is brought to you by Locker Room. Download the Locker Room app and find one of our Locked On Rooms. Locker Room is changing the way that we talk sports. The NBA playoffs are in full full swim. We've got two teams that are all, or sorry, not two teams. We've got one team who is already through to the second round. We're going to talk about them today, but lots of interesting stories right across the league. So let's get to it. So now let's talk to the host of the Locked On Suns podcast. Brendan Clean is here with me. We're recording this minutes after the Suns tied the series with the Los Angeles Lakers, two games apiece. Let's start with the big question, Brendan. How did Chris Paul looking uh, in game four? As well as you possibly could have hoped. I mean, he, he, he was open. Monty Williams was open. Rachel Nichols had a report in this game that Monty Williams was was ready to bench Chris Paul, was, was not... Basically, that, that that CP3 had to prove that he would actually help the team by being out there, which sounds like a crazy thing to say about Chris Paul, but he answered that demand. 18 points, 9 assists, no turnovers, especially a big steal late. So this is the guy the Suns need, and and I, I guess we can say they have him for now. Yeah, yeah, they, they, they do. Um yeah, there was that, that talk before the game where Chris Paul said that Monty Williams was going to sit him out this game, obviously providing that value. But it's not just Chris Paul. Like We can talk Chris Paul being being injured, being that factor that costs the Suns to lose game two and game three. And of course, that was a part of it, but it's not the entire thing because there are other players who have stepped up and have played really well during this time. But who do you want to highlight from game four that you know, deserves maybe a, an un, uh, unrecognized type shout out for Phoenix that really helped get them over the line in this 100-92 to victory? I, I would shout out two guys. One of them may be a little less unheralded. I mean, he's a ba- a major part of their success. He's defended LeBron James in the past. That's Jay Crowder, 17 points for him. And he's been ice cold during this entire series. And I mean that in a bad way. He could not make a shot and uh, was 2 of 20 coming into this game, 3 of 8 in this one, and 4 assists, 7 rebounds, solid defense on, on LeBron and Anthony Davis and in in help the way, you know, all the Jay Crowder stuff we know on defense, but the reason that I highlight him and the next guy, which is Tory Craig is they were able to survive playing very small in this game. They had been hesitant to do that. Monty Williams did not feel comfortable against the Lakers size playing small, but because Craig five rebounds Crowder, seven rebounds and just their, their physicality in this game that really helped the Suns downsize, get their offense going, play faster. So a lot of the offensive success the Suns had in that second half, I think, you can attribute to uh, to that decision and then those two guys making it happen. It's not all rainbows for this team. Like, obviously, it's it's too all. They head back to Phoenix for Game 5, but I've been really critical of Monty Williams all season for playing Frank Kaminsky in the role that he's played him in, in that he played him minutes at all. And we saw that problem here. He felt like he couldn't go to Dario Saric at all. So what do they do 
at backup center as we move forward. Now, maybe things will be a little bit easier if Anthony Davis has to miss time. Of course, he did suffer that uh, groin injury that, that cost him the second half of this game. But what do they do behind DeAndre Ayton, who played 38 minutes here, but there's no guarantee that he plays that much every game. Foul trouble can always be a problem in effectiveness. Might be an issue, although it's probably not when you compare him to what happens with Kaminsky and Sharich there. But the, yeah. the, the faith in Sharich is done. The faith in Kaminsky should never have been there, and it looks like it's done. So how do they how do they you know, go through this? Is small ball a viable option? Well, I think uh, you bring up a lot of good points. Uh, one is the foul trouble. I mean, it's a big credit to Aiton that it hasn't been an issue. I mean, that's huge in a guy's first playoff series, one of the youngest big-time contributors on any playoff team and the responsibility he has. So to not get into the foul trouble is really big. If that continues, you're really only talking about, you know, in this game, 10 minutes. In other games, even less. Aiton's played 40-plus, I think, in all the other three games, if not two of them. So in those minutes, whether AD plays or not, my tendency is to say that they keep it small, that you saw the the effect that they had. Uh, Torrey Craig has made his threes against all odds in this series. He couldn't really do that for Denver last year in the playoffs. He's done it so far. Jay Crowder, if this, he's very streaky. So I guess you hope that the hot streak is here if you're the Suns and, and you just, I think, try to make do and, and juice your offense a little bit during those minutes when Aiton is not on the floor. And Look, the Lakers have staggered LeBron and AD, so they're not exactly making it hard on you either. There's not a lot of lineups where you don't have Aiton and the Lakers have both of their stars. And so I think it's easier than it might seem to go small. And and like you said, Sharich is out. His 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 confidence is seemingly shot, and Kaminsky never had a place in this series in the first place. So they might not have another choice. I, I think the op- the uh, the option is pretty obvious at this point. Now, we've been going four minutes here, Brendan, and I'm pretty upset that you haven't referenced or talked about my uh, one of my favorite players in the NBA, and that is, of course, the Phoenix Suns backup point guard, Cameron Payne, who <laughs> yes. has been... Uh, we, we, talk, we talked about him, or I talked about him last year in the bubble, how good he was. And we go, is, is this a mirage? Like, the bloke's hitting 50% of his threes. Like, how real is this? And I have, I've been the only person who has stuck on the campaign train, and, and some of it is just because it's, I'm doing it as a meme, but... He's actually really good, and he played 25 minutes. That is not backup minutes to Chris Paul. That is playing alongside Chris Paul. Um, if we know Phoenix had that, we can go, it's 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 a, a laughable story at times when you go back to think they had three point guards and then they had zero point guards, and Isaiah Kanan was playing 40 minutes a night. But now they've found themselves that consistent backup point guard who can share the court with Chris Paul. Yeah, Cameron Payne has been a huge factor. And yeah, even when, when Paul was injured, you know, closing games uh, for him, it's, it's been massive to have that steady presence, 48 minutes of, of good play at point guard. He has been massive. And I'll admit, like going into this season, he was the biggest question mark for me, or, or not so much him, but they didn't really address that position aside from him. So they were putting the backup duties to Chris Paul completely on his plate. And he's answered that call massively, especially the past couple of months he went through some injuries I think he was on the COVID protocol for a little while and then basically March April on he's been huge and especially in this playoff series we've need we've seen him need to step up they play those two guys together a lot uh defensively he's easy to keep on the floor because he can defend guys bigger than him because of his strength and his energy and and everything else so I know you you follow this stuff Josh so I know you knew but he's been He's been this good for, for the majority of the second half of this season, and it's not surprising any Suns fans that he's stepping up. I know the the competition is is obviously uh, very much uh, higher than it was in you know some random night in Chicago during the regular season or whatever, but 
this guy has been doing this all year and uh, he, he's tailor-made for the playoffs. Like he, he just fights and he's been such a source of energy for them all series long. Yeah, he has been. He's been doing this for, you know, for quite a while now and it is great to see. Now we've spoken about the Suns. We've spoken about them yeah, equaling the series and we haven't mentioned Devin Booker. So let's mention Devin Booker. The last thing we're going to talk about here, Brendan, it's his first playoff series. He didn't shoot particularly well today, 36% shooting for 17 points. How has Booker fared in the playoff crucible in his first uh, first go round at it? Well, I guess it's kind of a tale of two cities, right? It's like in Phoenix, I think he played really, really well. I think he scored 30 plus in both of those. And then in LA, it's been two duds, although I will highlight, I don't think dud is fair, because I'll highlight that the first half, it, he was pretty solid in this game. I mean, he scored, I think, nine points in the first quarter. Um, basically, anytime Wes Matthews was on him in space, it did not go very well for Wes Matthews. I think in the second half, Booker, uh, first of all, Chris Paul just sort of took over, right? I mean, he he was healthy and, and feeling well enough to make that stuff happen late, and then Booker, to me, it felt like in that second half was trying a little too hard to draw fouls and get to the free throw line and, and was was tossing up some bad shots, turning the ball over as a result of that. But, I mean, also, you got to give a lot of credit to Alex Caruso. He He's unscreenable. He's strong as nails. Like, this guy um, is a pretty perfect weapon to defend a player like Devin Booker. And so, uh, a lot of credit to Caruso. But in the first half, I think Book did a lot to get the Suns to that 54-point half that they had. Second half, uh, fortunately for the Suns, Booker, even though he did struggle, Paul was able to take them home. So just to round things out here, what is your totally unbiased series prediction from here on out 2-2 as we sit after game four? I said Suns and seven just to be a homer, and I will, uh, I'll stick with it because what's the fun of changing it halfway through? Uh, game five is obvious. I mean, it's not, it's not a breaking to anybody that game five is going to be huge. Uh, the Suns having home court advantage, I guess, might matter. We'll, we'll have to see if that makes really a difference. Um, LeBron typically hasn't cared where the games are held, but um, look, I, I think the Suns have proven with this game and with game one that they uh, they are a legitimate opponent in this series. This is not going to be a walkover for the Lakers. I pick Suns in seven as well, so I will stick with that. Brendan, you'll have it all covered for us over on Locked on Suns. Thanks for coming on Locked on NBA with me. Thanks, Josh. You're the hiring expert for your company, and what you really need is help making your short list of quality candidates. You need a hiring partner who helps make your life easier. You need Indeed. Indeed is the job site that makes hiring as easy as one, two, and three. Post, screen, and interview all on Indeed. Get your quality short list of candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description faster, only pay for the candidates that meet the must-have qualifications, and schedule and complete video interviews on your Indeed dashboard with tools like Indeed Instant Match, giving you quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your job description immediately, and Indeed skills tests that on average reduce hiring time by 27%. According to TalentNest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined. If you're hiring, you need Indeed. And you can get started right now with a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash locked. Get a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash locked. Indeed.com slash locked. Offer valid through June 30th. Terms and conditions apply. Built Bar is the best tasting protein bar ever. Don't believe me? Order some. You'll find out. This doesn't taste like your generic protein bars that are just an absolute chore to get through. These taste like a delicious candy bar, but they are not only delicious, but they are healthy and good for you. Nine fantastic flavors with Built Bar, including coconut, raspberry, and double chocolate. There is something for everyone. And if you can't decide, why don't you get a mixed box? 
There are 18 bars, nine flavors, two of each flavor, so you can find out which one is your favorite. Most of the flavors have 17 grams of protein with just 130 calories, only four grams of sugar, and just four grams of net carbs. So go to BuiltBar.com, use the promo code LOCKED15, and you'll get 15% off your first order. The promo code is LOCKED15, L-O-C-K-E-D-1-5, for 15% off at BuiltBar.com. Today on the road to the finals, our NBA playoffs coverage is brought to you by Michelob Ultra. It's only worth it if you enjoy it. And at 2.6 grams of carbs and 95 calories, we can all enjoy the games a little bit more this season. And enjoying the games is exactly what the host of Locked On Bucks, Kane Pittman, is doing. Because Milwaukee, they're through, Kane. They have uh, they have exercised the demons, um, beating the Miami Heat four games to zero in round one. Is there is there any level of you know, satisfaction, revenge, for last season's elimination for Miami, or is it? Or is it a bit of like a job's not done? Yeah, it was interesting. Uh, Mike Budenholzer was asked the exact same question after Game Four yesterday, and before the reporter could even finish asking the question, he was already shaking his head. And I, and I think I think that's the right attitude if you think about what the the Bucks are trying to achieve this this postseason. Certainly, beating Miami, overcoming some of those mental hurdles is a good thing for this team. And, and I think game one was indicative of the fact that the Bucks had to fight through some struggles and perhaps some mental block late in those games. But ultimately, once the series turned into a one-sided affair as it did, the Bucks have bigger designs than getting through the first round. So sure, there's some satisfaction about beating Miami, but this team came into the season wanting to win a championship. They made the moves that, think, that they think can help them do that. So uh, I do think you have to move on pretty quickly. I think something that needs to be you know, spoken about here with this Bucks team is it's not like they came in, they swept Miami by playing a perfect series. Like they, they didn't come in and just be like, wow, everything is going right. They are just smashing on, on all cylinders. So what were the things that you see from this win where you go, well, that's great. We took care of business, but we can still get better in these areas. Yeah, there's a couple of things that stand out to me because I've probably been on the, the other side of, of trying to to figure out what the postseason struggles have been for the Bucs in recent years. And I certainly pointed more to the offensive end than the defensive end for this team. And we know in the postseason, generally you're going to have to find ways to score in a half-court game and find ways to score against defenses that are, that are typically up there um, with the best in the league. So Miami certainly presented that challenge. And I think that we saw the difference from last season to this season, not only just with the personnel that Miami changed that made things a little bit easier, but I think having Drew Holiday, we've spoke about it all season long, but just having that third guy that can genuinely break down a defense in the half court, get his own shot, facilitate. He had nine assists in game four, a 15 assist game earlier in the series as well. So just having that third facilitator, we know for much of the last couple of postseasons, the Bucks have been playing basically four on five with Eric Bledsoe on the floor. So having not only a guy that the defense has to worry about, but a really high quality player in Drew Holiday, just un- unshackled the, the Bucks offense, I think a little bit. And then in game four, I think we saw the maturity of Giannis. This was by far not his best series in terms of efficiency, only 45% from the field, 6% from three, and 63% from the free throw line. But I think we saw the maturity in game four where he was able to uh, rack up 15 assists and not force the issue. And I think in, in years gone by, one, he's felt like he had to force the issue, but two, he wanted to be the star. He wanted to be the scorer. He wanted to get his 30 points. So I think that um, him understanding how the Bucks can win and how he can impact the games in other ways, I think is significant. Dante DiVincenzo is now out for the season with a torn ankle ligament. He was 
capably filled in for by Bryn Forbes, who had 22 points in game four, hit seven threes, but they are very, very different players. Forbes is a shooter who does nothing else, can't really defend very well, although he's sort of held his own against Miami. But losing DiVincenzo out of that starting group, it is a pretty significant loss. And you know, with the likely matchup coming up next against the Brooklyn Nets, How's Forbes going to be able to hold up against a Kyrie Irving or a James Harden? Is he going to be playable at all? Does that mean we have to rely on more Pat Connaughton, more you know um, Jeff Teague, more minutes of PJ Tucker and going with you know, super big lineups with Middleton at the two? How does that loss of DiVincenzo impact this next likely matchup against Brooklyn? Yeah, I think it's a good point you make. I, I do think this is more significant than probably most on the outside really assume because he's the fifth starter. He's a little bit erratic, certainly scoring the ball, but he makes so many big plays for this team, whether it's deflections on the defensive ends and steals that turn into transition opportunities. But the other big thing that he does is rebound. He is an excellent rebounder at the guard position, and he also has that size defensively, which wasn't going to matter against the Miami team that was really pathetic offensively, but... Uh, against Brooklyn, it will matter. And and the, the point you make about Bryn Forbes is is exactly what uh, I would be concerned about if I'm the Bucks. I don't think there's any way that Forbes will start. It'll be P.J. Tucker or Pat Connaughton that will start for the defensive purposes there because the one thing that you knew against Miami, they had a couple of really, really one-dimensional guys that you could get away with lineups that weren't exactly perfect defensively. That's not going to be the case when you're trying to defend James Harden and Kyrie Irving in the backcourt. So maybe, you know, Joe Harris is the guy that at fifth, starter that you say okay he's mostly going to be spotting up i know he can do a lot more other things but that's the guy you're gonna have to try and hide someone on if anything at all but it's a different kettle of fish i I think i think this is a a big loss for the bucks and uh it'll be interesting to see how they find a way around it but as you pointed to i think Connaughton and pj tucker are going to see a a serious uptick in minutes they were able to shut jimmy butler down in that series pretty easily bam out of bio looked lost for most of it Kendrick Nunn, Duncan Robinson, these guys really, really struggled, but it is a very different situation matching up against James Harden, Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant. So you know, how do the Bucks do that? Is there anything they're able to do where they were, how, how they're able to slow down Jimmy Butler? Is there anything that can be translated across to taking on guys like Harden and Irving in particular? Or is it just a completely different scenario that's going to be out there and, and we need you know, Middleton and Holiday to be really ramping things up to, and, and PJ Tucker to go out there and potentially guard his former teammate in, uh, in James Harden there? Is it just going to be a completely different game plan that's required? Well, I think if you're going to take a positive from it from Milwaukee's point of view, when you're playing Brooklyn, you can't really afford to be sending doubles and triple teams and all this type of stuff because they've got too many guys that can hurt you. And I think if you look at the Miami series, you do walk away and say, okay, well, you know, Giannis was the guy a lot of the times that one-on-one was able to shut down Jimmy Butler and use his size, use his length. So I'm really curious to see what they do with Giannis. When the Bucks have played Brooklyn in the past, he's kind of been the floater. He's been the help guy. That's what he does so well. He essentially won a defensive player of the year playing that role. But I don't know whether you can afford to do that against this Brooklyn series now. You have a number of guys that they can rotate through. I think they have four excellent defenders that they're going to have at least on the floor for most of the time with Drew Holiday, Chris Milton, Giannis, uh, and and PJ Tucker, Brooke Lopez as well. So they've got the guys that they can rotate through. But the key to having any success against the Nets is you're going to have to defend in isolation and one-on-one. And, and, and that's why Brooklyn is so scary and that's why they're so challenging. But I think what we saw from Giannis in the first round series is it's at least encouraging. I, I do think out of all the teams you look across the league, the Bucks would have to be right up there in terms of having the individual personnel to at least feel like they have an outside chance of making their life difficult. 
It is going to be one of the most anticipated series of the entire playoffs, Kane, and you'll have it covered for us all over on Locked on Bucks from a Milwaukee's perspective as Milwaukee gets prepared to take on their round two opponent, which is you know, 99% likely going to be Brooklyn. As, <laughs> as we're recording this, they are about to take the third game in that, or their third win in that series over over the Boston Celtics. Thank you for coming on Locked on NBA and talking about your Bucks. Yeah, anytime, mate. Appreciate it. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all of your sports action. The NBA playoffs, they're in full swing, and you can track all that action at Bet Online. So before the next game tips, head to Bet Online on your laptop or mobile device, and you can use our promo code Locked On to receive a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit, as well as checking out the great sporting news and contest information over there. Don't sit on the sidelines anymore. This is your chance to get into the game as the teams prep for their run really, really deep into the playoffs. Bet Online are your online sportsbook experts. Now, I talk to the host of the Locked On Jazz podcast, the head of the Locked On Podcast Network, David Locke, is here. David, the Jazz uh, obviously lost game one against Memphis, but have bounced back with some, I guess, I don't know if you call them comfortable victories. The margin looks like they're comfortable, but there's always been a few little weird moments in those games. Are the Jazz, are they close to firing on all cylinders yet? I don't know if they're firing on all cylinders because I think Memphis is really, really good. I mean, Memphis's starting lineup with Jaron Jackson was a plus 19 for 100 possessions this year. Um, in the 11 games they had, I, I think, you know, you, they're tightening their rotation. Valanchunas is a beast. John Morant's been playing out of his head. Uh, I think, you know, Memphis has been really good. And so if the Jazz aren't firing on all cylinders at this point in the last two games, I would credit it to Memphis. I didn't think game two was particularly close. I did think game three was very close. Frankly, that game was tied. I don't have it right in front of me, but I think at 98, 100, 101, 103, 105, 107, and like 108, and then the Jazz went on a 14-2 to run to close, um, which, you know, frankly, for the Jazz is a big deal. They haven't won a playoff series in a long time, and they showed in that that, that that's, the, that's what you'd expect a Laker or a, you know, a Brooklyn Nets or a championship level team to go do. And they look like that in the final three minutes against the Memphis Grizzlies the other night. How's Donovan Mitchell looked in his return from his ankle injury? We don't have, we don't have to get into all of the weirdness of whatever happened in, in game one with the not an injury report and him missing time, but he's two games back. Is he, is he back at a hundred percent? Is he, is he struggling? Is he searching? What's, what's he look like at the moment? I think he's at about a point a minute. Okay. Does that work for you? Yeah, that's not bad. That's not bad. Yeah, like I, uh, I, you know, frankly, he didn't look superb in parts early parts of Game Three. He actually, to me, looked like a guy who was playing his second game back after a long outage. Right? They are, guys always come back with a lot of juice in the first one, and then in the second one, the body hurts and they're fighting themselves. And I, that's how he looked to me early. It was two of ten shooting threes. Okay, but when the game was on the line. He literally calmly walked up the floor, directed traffic in a one ten in a one oh nine in a one oh Jazz were down two. He drove to the basket, lay up in a foul on a beautiful three point play to put the Jazz up by one. Then with three fifteen left, the guy's one of nine from three. He walks up the floor. He directs traffic. He gets the pick. He comes off the bounce and just rises and buries the three to make it 113-109 what was probably the biggest basket of the game and then closed the game scoring four of the final six points at the free throw line where he drove and got fouls. So as much as maybe he wasn't quite right, he showed incredible 
you know, fortitude late as only a fourth year player in this end in the NBA and his ability to be clutch late. He he was superb. Yeah, look, his shooting percentages weren't great, but you're know, carrying a load of 45% usage in game three in your second game back um, is, is pretty huge. And we know he has to take a lot of those tough shots. But who's who's been the Jazz's best player for his uh, first three games? Has it been Gobert? Has it been Mike Conley, who's been playing at a extraordinarily high level? Like, who's Who's been leading this team, do you think, in, in this time? I, I would go leaps and bounds toward Mike Conley. Yeah, I think it is too. I rewatched game two, and honestly, at this point, I have not rewatched game three yet. And as the play-by-play announcer, you actually don't see it great until you rewatch it if you really are trying to analyze it. In game two, I don't know if, if I'm overstating it, but I actually thought he was close to perfect. His reads, and Memphis, Taylor Jenkins is a fabulous coach, maybe one of the best in the NBA, and really elite level that people aren't talking about. Like, I mean, this guy is going to be a great, great coach. That's why Memphis will be good for a long, long time, because they have Taylor Jenkins. They were doing super creative things in their pick-and-roll coverages, bringing guys from places you wouldn't, having Valanciunas play high while Jaron Jackson slipped underneath almost in a one-man zone because they had multiple rim defenders. Lots of different unique things. Mike Conley read every single one of them perfectly. Yeah, look, he's he's been he's been great. Obviously, towards the end of the year, David, he was dealing with that hamstring problem and they were easing him through. Um, that is is no problem anymore. Here's he's putting up some really good numbers. We go back for game four again in Memphis with Utah with a with a two one lead. Is there any changes that Utah needs to make from that from that victory in game three or any sort of things that need to improve? Of course, Jordan Clarkson and, and Joe Ingles both were pretty average, I thought, coming off the bench. They, they weren't at their best. Um, so I guess there's some improvement there. What what does Utah need to do to really you know, put their stamp on this series and say, well, you're not coming back from here? Now, Jordan Clarkson's been really far off his regular game. Um, his three-point shooting's never been great. His off-the-bounce three hasn't been great since post-All-Star break. But he's been further off than usual, of course, you know, as uh, Jordan Clarkson has got the beauty that, you know, one play does not ever lead to the next um, unless I guess he gets totally on fire. And then sometimes they seem to lead to the next, but not always. And so, you know, you know, in a key basket in this game with 850 left of the game, you know, he's driving the basket scoring and then he hit a massive three uh, earlier at close to three third quarter. And I think he hit a massive three in the fourth for his like two threes he'd made all game. So th- there's no second. Joe Ingles was surprisingly absent uh, from that game. And, you know, Joe has been playing with the ball in his hands a tremendous amount uh, when Mike Conley or Donovan Mitchell were out and the Jazz are, are going to that. For whatever reason, at least in all the data, Joe Ingles' pick and roll on Jonas Valen- with Valanciunas as the defending bigs have not been very good. And so that is is keeping him off his game a tiny bit, I think. And maybe the Jazz can find a way to get him going, but they need him. So those would be the areas. Um, you know, they've got to figure out Morant a little bit. Um, the bigger concern to me, honestly, and maybe this is funky to say, is the 41 three-point attempts that Memphis took. I think the Jazz have a huge math advantage in the way these two teams play and how many threes the Jazz take and how much better their shot selection is. But somehow, Memphis got 41 threes off the other night, and I think the Jazz really have to tighten that up. I'd be willing to let John Morant take 30 shots if he's not going to the free throw line 20 times, and it means he's not passing out to guys taking threes. 
Yeah, well, yeah, Jazz Legend, Grayson Allen, took uh, eight threes in that game as well, hit five of them. So he was a, a big part of what they did on the bench there. And they, you're right, they're a team that doesn't normally take threes in that sort of volume, but they were they were bombing from deep with uh, you know, Brooks and Allen and even Kyle Anderson getting in the mix there. And uh, Jaron Jackson uh, can be a high-volume three-point shooter. So it was an interesting change to see them do that. Who's the biggest threat here? Do you think it is still Ja Morant or you know, Dylan Brooks led this team with 27, well, not led, he had 27 points in that last game, but took the most shots on Memphis, Memphis in game three. Is he a bigger threat both ways? Who's the guy they really need to be focusing on? No, Morant's the threat. I mean, I think Valanchunas is the problem, and Morant is the threat. Dylan Brooks will revert back to the back of his basketball card at some point here. Maybe one <laughs> yep. of seven from three did. I mean, just there's enough sample size there that tells you that he'll get there. Um, I, I think the transition threes are a problem. Memphis and the Jazz are the top two teams in the league in transition three attempts, and the Jazz have got to eliminate those transition threes, so that's where the, a team that's not a very good half-court offensive team is able to make some plays. Um, Valanchunas is really, I think, far better than anyone in this league realizes. Uh, the kind of the comment I've had, Josh, and you can build on this some other time, but you know, if you were to ask NBA people to kind of draft players and you were to put the Pelicans and the Grizzlies in a draft together, obviously John Morant goes, but Lonzo Ball, Eric Bledsoe, Brandon Ingram, Zion Williamson, Stephen Adams, JJ Redick to start the year, you know, whomever else you want to put out there probably would all get drafted before anybody else in the Grizzlies. And yet the Grizzlies are constantly winning more games than the New Orleans Pelicans are. So what is it on the Grizzlies that's better than people realize? I think a lot of it's Valanchunas. I think maybe some of it's Kyle Anderson who had 13 rebounds and five assists the other day. I think a lot of it's Taylor Jenkins. But I, you know, I think it's a really good question for those people that analyze the NBA. And I think it shows where the analysis is off, that Memphis is, is really this good. And New Orleans is terrific, except for the fact they don't win games. Yeah, I think I think the Valanciunas one is a key thing. He's he's really good. He's been good for a long time, and it's really been this season where he's been more sort of unleashes the wrong word, but they've just said, "Well, go out there and play some more, um, and we'll just let you sort of run things offensively, and you can you know, improve defensively," which he has because in the past he's been limited like 24, 25 minutes, and they said, "No, nah, like, you're this good, you'll play thirty minutes," and I think it's led to a big turnaround with Memphis to see him actually be able to play a role that I think he's been ready for for three or four years. It just hasn't really happened. So we get ready now for game four. Um, and then you're know, looking ahead after that, if Utah does get through this series, another tough one is, is maybe Luca or maybe against Kawhi with the Clippers or the Mavericks, depending on how that series goes. David, you'll have it covered for us all over on Locked On Jazz. Thanks for coming on and, and discussing uh, Utah through the first three games. My pleasure, Locked On NBA, my favorite daily podcast covering the NBA in 30 minutes. I love it. And that will do it for today's show. But make sure you are checking out the Locked On Today podcast. Is Nikola Jokic enough for the Nuggets? You get more of the sports news you need in less time with the Locked On Today podcast. Follow the Locked On Today podcast on the Odyssey app or wherever you get podcasts. Make sure you are following this podcast as well. Odyssey, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and leave us reviews if you can as well. Share it with your friends. Make sure you're never missing an episode. Follow me on Twitter at RedRock underscore Beeble as well as the Locked On Podcast Network at Locked On Pods on Twitter and on Instagram. Guys, we are done here. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. See ya.